The Drum Candy Podcast is brought to you by Drum Factory Direct. What's up, everyone? Welcome into episode five of season two of the Drum Candy Podcast. This is your host, Mike Dawson. I'm coming to you from Drum Factory Direct in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. This week's guest is legendary session drummer Chris McHugh. Chris has been a first call Nashville session drummer for quite a few years. He's been on many hit records. His credits go way too long for me to even begin to rattle them off, but you've got Carrie Underwood, you've got Rascal Flatts, you've got Lee Bryce, you've got Big and Rich, you've got Hunter Hayes, you've got, uh, it's been several years on several records with Keith Urban. Some of my favorite work of his is on Defying Gravity, Keith Urban record. Um, it just goes on and on. He's a he's a he's a legend of the art form. A lot of knowledge. We kind of go deep into the you know the nuances of session drumming. I learned a lot in this episode. For me personally, I put Chris on the Mount Rushmore of drum tones. I just love his sound. It's big and deliberate and powerful. Always in the pocket, creative, but doesn't call too much attention to itself. Um, I put him on the like I said the Mount Rushmore with Steve Jordan, Matt Chamberlain, Joey Wonker, and Chris McHugh. So I was super excited to chat with Chris. Let's get to it. The great Chris McHugh. First question I wanted to ask is the state of affairs in the Nashville session scene. Um, yeah, is it business as usual or is it a totally revamping or how's it how's it feeling? I you know it, it seems to be just kind of business as usual right now. There, there was um, you know in twenty twenty. Uh, there was a big dependency on the home rig Mm -hmm. and uh, but there was still live dates going on. Um, You know, they would kind of like uh, there were few and far between, but there was a big shift, you know, just to to doing things remotely. And then this year uh, it's just kind of normal. You know, still, I would say, if anything, 2020 kind of cemented the the idea of doing remote recording as as sort of being a constant, uh, sort of from here on out. Mm. And um, but yeah, it's normal, man. I mean, there's regular tracking dates going on all the time. You know, um, with it, you know, anywhere from you know, it's at least four players, and sometimes you know, you have six. So yeah, are, yeah. With are you set up for remote recording as yeah. well? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So what's the balance? Is it fifty-fifty? I mean, how does it work out? Oh man, God, I don't know. It just depends. It's hard to. It's hard to. To. to uh, uh, lately, it's been mostly you know in studio for the last few months, but then there's, you know, there's some months where it's, it's just remote stuff. So I, I don't know, maybe a good safe way for me currently, I would say 30% is remote. Mm, okay. Right You're now. Still in the yeah. Rooms. yeah. That's great. Oh yeah. 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 And that was, a, that was a definite shift around, um, kind of right at the beginning of the year, mm. you know? Yeah. Yeah, everybody so is, was. Yeah. Is your work week like Friday? It's the last day, or is it spilled into the weekend? Oh yeah, no, it's weekend or whatever. It just depends. Some if uh, th- that's the thing about the remote part that uh, changes the schedule as far as um, anything 
that's sort of you know in in a studio none of that ever happens to me i'm never really i'm never working on a sunday and then saturday sessions are are kind of rare for me but those are the days that i'll work from home mm. yeah yeah right, that's so how that is big yeah. question how has the studio scene changed or evolved since you first started I think you're one oh, of the, the few that I can think of that have seen the whole transition tape to digital tape to Pro Tools, the whole progression. Yeah. Oh, man. Well, without sounding like, um, you know, without sounding like a boomer or whatever, <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, it, it's certainly different. So um, I would say as a, an overview, initially recording on analog, meant that the performer had to um you know compose a part and that's that's a that that you do you know as a team with with the uh with the producer i mean you know you throw out ideas and you kind of you sort of play what you 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 see fits the song unless they have a definitive idea of what they're wanting uh but you as the performer would have to do that to tape and do a full performance from top to bottom typically and then you know of course you could always punch in uh and then depending upon the engineer um you'd be able to punch out and then you know get certain sections or you know we could edit tape but i would say the lean or the importance of the musician was that you had to play apart from top to bottom um, and with the limited amount of tracks, um, you had to compose a part that had the most meaning with, without a lot of overdubs. Um, you know, in the drum world, that's, that's not as tough as the thing as it is for say a guitar player or a keyboard player, you know, the records that I started on were all 24 tracks. So you might have, you know, depending upon the project you could have anywhere from eight to 12 of those tracks were all drums and then you know you've got bass and then you've got a few for guitar and so when it came to being you know the economy and the recording came to mainly the keyboard players and those guitar players had to figure out how to come up with parts that made the most sense so that if they were going to double it uh it, it would represent the most, you know, efficiency. Like, so the point to all of this is, is that the difference now is, um, that's not really the case. You, you can, um, you know, there's the sense of, um, what's the best way to put it? So it's no longer that it's no longer on the drummer to, uh, have that whole part played from uh, <laughs> no worries uh, that the to play your part you know from top to bottom uh you know e even in terms of you know timing is not as big of an issue as it used to be in terms of you know because uh, everything could be tightened up or um you know edited in post so that that's the big difference is that where when I first started, the um, 
the importance was on how I was, how was I going to perform an entire track and play that in time, you know, to the click. And um, now it's, you know, people can take things from section to section or, and it's a lot faster now in, in regard to like, so back then, it, it, you really had to, you had to take the time and compose a part and everything. Cause that was it. It was permanent. There was no editing really, you know, I mean, you could cut tape and stuff, but for the most part, what, whatever you did that day is what was going to last forever. And then now, you know, everything can be changed about what you do. So it's a bit more throwaway um, because there's so much more you can do in post. You can sound replace, you can line things up, um, you know, and I'm not, I'm not saying that that doesn't necessarily like how anyone plays is how they're going to play. Like you, even when you take someone and you, you grid them out and you replace all their sounds and everything, you know, a lifeless, and I don't know how this works, but it's the oddest thing. It just seems like the space between the notes can't be healed. Those either have either have something or they don't, you know? So th that's really the, the essence of how, how recording has changed. But you know, the funny thing is, is in Nashville, we still record, you know, as a band. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it is still beneficial to kind of have the knowledge that, that I had coming in, you know, the requirements initially of, um, you know, composing a part, having good sounds, playing in time, um, making a chorus feel like a chorus, um, you know, that, that all still matters now. It's just not as, um, uh, it's, it, it's not as, um, what's the best word? Um, again, it can be changed. So, so, you know, the, the requirement to nail that is, is not what it used to be. Um, does that mean that? Oh, this is the. Does that mean records were better back then? Does that no missing that know. edginess? Is it making more relaxed? I mean, what is it? Well, What's pros and cons. I think in some way, okay, the pros would be that you can take more chances because you just undo it, you know, mm -hmm. or or um, so. So on the experimental side, it's um, you know it's freeing in regard to that the downside even in that would be it, it also makes it harder just to just solidify the idea that you're trying to come across because you have too many options you know so you know the the i i would say you know it's not that they're better it's um uh you know whether music is uh, or tracks are better now than they used to be it's solely upon you know, records I look at, there's such a group effort. And same thing with a film, you know, with the advent of like CGI, you know, it opened up this whole new realm of filmmaking that didn't exist before because you could do things in the digital domain. But that doesn't make the script better. It doesn't make the, you know, if there are actors in that CGI thing, it doesn't it can't make their performance 
better than it is. It can make them look cooler or, or prettier or, or things like that. So it's really, you know, I don't have any issue with, with the, with any of the new, you know, any technology at all, because it still goes back to what are we doing with it? You know, is, is the, is the performance that I'm getting from any musician soulful or not? Does it, um, does it communicate the song um, in the best way possible? So whether it's on analog or on digital, it doesn't really matter. I do like the, um, the box that analog puts you in is I have to make a decision and do it this way. And this is the way it's going to be. So there's a nice economy to that. And I think, um, you get some really cool interplay, you know, uh, that way musicians react different when they know there's nothing's going to be edited and in post, you know? Um, and, but, uh, you know, again, it's really, you know, it's not the tool. It, it's, it's the, it's the craftsman, you know, it's like, what do we, what do we do with it? Um, I mean, there's been many, many times that working on a digital has saved, you know, certain projects or performances or things, you know, like things that had they been on analog, <clears throat> it, it, it just would have been unusable, you know, because you could do things like, if if you're re recording a you know a, a full drum kit or a full band and um you know if if the kick drum mic goes out in the middle of a performance you know you can take a sample and recreate that you know uh and and use it on the track like i'm just saying there are there are a million pluses to to the digital domain uh and there are a million pluses on the analog side too. But to answer your question, uh, I mean, I wouldn't say that they were better. I would say that they were more human, mm. you know? Do you, do you have um, like a mental switch, go for the take? Like, even though you're, you could feasibly undo everything. Do you still like, this is, I'm going to go for it now. Like, yeah. Like what happens? Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. I can't, I can't undo that, that, that process. That's just kind of ingrained. Cause I, I, I do know that it, it does, um, you know, the funny thing is, is I, I don't know what people are going to do in post with what I play. So, but I, I, in my experience, when I've heard records back where they did, where I was edited heavily, it still mattered that I was going for a real take. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't know if that makes any sense, but it's like, again, it, I don't know what it is. It's the oddest thing, you know, even things that are like, you know, there, um, where everything is replaced. There isn't one live sound on the thing. There might be some overheads in there and it still matters, mm -hmm. you know? So I, I do go after all of it. Like I, I approach it the same way I was, as if I was playing on analog, that this is a permanent uh, performance and that's the way it's going to sit. Have you found yeah. that the tighter you play, the less you get edited? <laughs> Does that matter anymore? Um, you know, it's funny. It just depends because, you know, tight is, is relative, you know, um, it, 
I do find there's a nice, interesting trend right now in, in uh, and specifically in pop stuff where things are not gridded. Mm. They're, they are, they're, they're going some, you know, like granted sometimes on the drums, you know, it's like a four bar loop, but it's a human being playing it and they haven't, um, they haven't messed with um, any of it. They're just using that four bar loop and they're leaving that, that human feel. So, you know, um, it, it, um, I mean, I always try to play, you, you know, as if it's a finished record, you know, uh, what's nice about having done this as long as I, I have is I have a really good sense of how something is and what I personally call how it's going to mix out, mm. how it's good, how it's going to finish. You know, I can imagine, you know, I'll, I'll play on the thing thinking that, well, they're, they're either going to edit this or they're not. So with all of that in mind, I want to present a drum track that is going to complement whatever they decide to do. So can it stand up on its own with no editing at all is how I approach it. Um, do your choices of gear kind of deter, you know, if, if you know it's going to be a heavily produced versus more of a live feel, does that affect what you put up? Um, yeah, I would say, you know, I have a tendency to, um, you know, uh, it really depends on the song, of course, mm -hmm. but the sounds, you know, um, Typically, okay. Here, here's a here's a good uh, here, here's a good philosophy on the thing. Is typically if something is going to be, uh, you, you know, really edited out, that's usually something that you know where you're playing to loops and and other layered uh, drum. You, you know, um, uh, whether it's a drum machine or a loop. Or, you know, the drums might be the only quote-unquote um, uh, human instrument. And they just want the texture to sit against all of that programming. And so those sounds need to really fit in with the pro programming stuff. So, like, you know, if it's mainly, if there's a lot of, like, 808 or, or really long programmed kick drums and there's a specific note in that um programmed kick i'm gonna i'm gonna tune my bass drum to fit inside of that to make sense because um you know even when you like completely line something up or whatever you have frequencies that are going to phase out of each other and you know the the idea you know that uh, i want to sit in complement with whatever this programming is. And you can almost imagine, you know, they have the, you know, they, they may just want the live kit to capture mid range energy. So you have all this program with this really high end top end, you know, maybe even, you know, it's kind of out of vogue now, but like during the trap hat era, and then you have these big 808 kicks on the bottom and then the middle is what they are wanting the live acoustic kit for. <clears throat> and they, so those sounds, whatever I come up with needs to fit inside of that. So how that would look would be typically it's like coming up with a snare drum that has a lot of attack, 
and punch, but not a lot of overtone ring. And then on the bass drum would be, uh, you know, what pitch I want the thing to be at and then how much muffling. Sometimes it works really well just to pull the front head off. Uh, and then what's really cool is the choices that the hi-hats make. So like, you know, cause you, you, if you're really hitting that kind of mid range energy, you want everything to kind of s- sort of to, to be sitting right in there and uh, imagine the grain or the texture of the thing to, uh, to be like, you know, um, almost like if you had a, a, um, the way I think about it is almost like you have a bag of sand, you know, and when you rustle that thing around, there's all these different tones, but they're, they're sitting inside of itself. And so that's where the hi-hats would come in, you know, whether it's something really, um, you know, crazy, like I have those Sabian, uh, those 18 inch hats with the holes in them. And, um, and then, you know, you, you, you would play those really light, you know, to try to, to, to sit into the kit. Cause that's the other thing I do too, is try to think of how is all of these sounds that I'm playing, how are the overheads interpreting that? Cause that's where the most energy is to me. Um, and especially, uh, you know, if, if, if you, if I am playing on something and the part needs to be juxtaposed with that program part, it's got to sit in there and percolate, you know, and it's almost, uh, it's just a voice. And typically that kind of thing happens, you know, it kind of comes in with the chorus and then goes away, you know? Um, so that's how, how I change that, you know, um, the other, the, the other stuff I would change too, if I, if I know, um, that there's something's going to be heavily produced and, and, um, you, you know, that they're going to want to really like a lot, a lot of times in terms of compression, they really want to push the room sounds and they really want to get like a very creative kind of compression or room sound going with that. And then sometimes just some distortion with closer mics is all overdub symbols later, which is a very old, I mean, that's been going on forever. I think sort of the first, um, time I ever really heard about it was, you know, like uh, Phil Collins working with Gabriel, you know, in the, in the early, uh, actually late early eighties, like 80, 1980 or something like that. So those are the kinds of things when I, I think of, of like, okay, well, this is going to be, uh, heavily produced. So there's some cool things you can do because of that. And, and even when I'm doing that, you know, uh, putting the, putting the symbols on after I've gotten the drum track is I won't even play the ride and I'll put that on later, uh, on the overdub. And this is some really, really interesting, cool things that can come from that. You know, again, um, that is something that you could, you could do on analog and, and people have done that, but it's a lot easier to do it now, you know? Um, and, and it's, um, I'll say this too. The great thing about about digital and and in terms of the marketplace of music, right? The the manufacturing of music is it speeds the process along. Which ultimately, you know, somebody's paying for that time that we're in the studio. So, you know, digital has um, made workflow uh, incredibly more efficient. 
you, you know, and, and whether that's good or bad, again, is up to uh, who's using the tools, you know? Mm-hmm. So it, it's hard to, to, uh, to have a negative, um, I don't really have anything negative to say about digital at all. You know, I mean, I'm always going to be nostalgic for, for, for analog and I still work in that domain occasionally. Um, there, there are the, the limitations that analog have can be incredibly beneficial, mm-hmm. you know, and th- and that's really all I have to say kind of about, about that thing. But, um, yeah, you know, man, I mean, it, it again, you know, I, when, when I'm in there, I, I'm there to, I, I'm no different than, uh, you know, somebody that works at the front desk of a hotel, you know, it's like the artist of the producer is like, Hey, can we have, you know, I need, I need more towels sent up to the room. It's like, yeah, <laughs> you know? Um, so where it becomes, you know, my personal, like, you know, where I can put my stamp on it is how do I deliver those towels and, and, and what quality are they? And is this a towel that you're going to remember, you know, mm. man, man, when that guy brought those towels, boy, <laughs> Chris that McEwen was, is embroidered the, fluffy towels. Whatever, man. Yeah. Whether, whether it's that or, you know, man, these are the thirstiest towels that were ever delivered to a room, man. They soaked up all that water after getting out of the shower. You know, it, it's funny. It, it, it's, um, the beauty, man, I'm telling you, the great thing about being a musician is not necessarily the experience that I have when I'm performing or, or playing on something. It's how people take it. Mm. Cause you know, I'm, I'm just trying to get a message across and when it's received, you know, when, when, when someone does say, Hey man, oh, I love what you did on blah, blah, blah. And that's the real thing. And I've noticed, you know, uh, that, that the more open I am to the process of, of, uh, given the song what it needs, then that's when people react the most, you know? Mm-hmm. So I don't know if that answers the question or yeah, not. Yeah, for sure. So when you're going in, like you get booked for a session, let's say on Monday, do you know ahead of time what you're going to be playing or do you just bring everything you can think of? And has your gear, your basic gear changed because of all um, these new concepts? Uh, it, it, I would say lately, you know, over the last uh, several years, oh man, maybe four, four years or so, I have a tendency to kind of do play a, a smaller kit, mm. just, just like, you know, uh, two toms. And uh, so that's, that's changed, but I'll change that up too. That's some of that is just a personal, uh, personal choice, but I'm, you know, probably next year I'll go back to, uh, I actually like to use four toms, you know? Um, so I think I'll, I'm going to get back into that, um, next year. But, um, so what I bring is, is, you, you know, a lot of snare drums, um, a lot of different simple choices, and then kind of any percussion thing that you can think of, um, I'm fine with programming as well. Sometimes I bring a programming rig, sometimes I don't. And that's just a laptop and a, and an Apollo is all that is. Um, no, I don't know what, what we're, what we're going to do. 
um, I kind of have a general idea depending upon the producer. Um, but, you know, having a, um, you know, having a long career at doing this means that it's just about adapting. So, you know, that, that's really the thing is, is regardless of whatever it's going to be. Uh, I think people know that they're going to walk out of there with, um, a drum track that they're really happy with, you know? And, um, and, and some of that is, is, um, you know, what's on me with that is, is having, um, sounds that are, uh, you know, commercially viable, (laughs) you know, coming off of the kit, you know, how I tune the kit and all that kind of stuff. And then, you know, to come up with a groove that, that is, uh, you know, supports the singer and, and, uh, you know, it moves people, makes me, makes people want to move to it. So that's really the end of it. It's like, you know, um, uh, and the community is pretty small. So it, even without anyone saying, Hey, this thing that we're doing Monday is going to be blank just by who has called me. That's, you know, I, I kind of know what kind of ballpark it's going to be in. Uh-huh. So, yeah. How do you settle on which snare gets on the record? Oh man. Uh, well, it, uh, it's a funny thing, man. Um, you know, you just kind of hear it in your head uh, as you're so, so, you know, what, what happens on any kind of normal day uh, in the studio would be I get there at nine to get drum sounds. The session starts at 10. The other players start kind of filing in around 930 or whatever. They get sounds, too. And then at 10 o'clock, we're all in the control room and they're playing us a demo of the song we're about to do. Now that can be, sometimes that can be like a full demo with a band and everything in it. Sometimes it can be just a singer uh, and a guitar or a piano. And, you know, at that point, the producer will kind of put out some general, uh, you know, overview of, of what he wants the song to be like. The question I usually ask first is, how big do you want this to be? Should it sort of simmer in the middle? Um, you know, or is it, is this, should it be very light? And, um, you know, or, you know, did you want it to rock or, or, or whatever? And then, the, then I take those comments and that's how I approach what snare I'm going to use. So, you know, um, the key of the song has a good, um, that's something I really pay, pay attention to. Um, you know, if I'm using a snare, that's, that's going to have uh, a bunch of overtone, I'm tuning within that key, uh, try to find what's the best sort of hanging note. Um, in Nashville, we're, I'd say 90% of the time there's an acoustic on the track. So the snare drum I pick is usually in comp and, you know, it has to be complementary to that. Um, something that's sort of more muted and finger picking 
gives you more options on what you can use. And then when you get into full strums and stuff like that, that's, that's when the length of that note of the snare drum really is, you know, it's concerning at that point because, you know, as the, as the chord changes and you have sustained notes, you know, you can have a lot of weird kind of rubbing overtones in there. So uh, it also depends too what room I'm in, what studio I'm in, because certain snare drums that I have don't necessarily sound as good as other ones do. There are a few that I have that sound good everywhere that I play, but, you know, wood snare drums uh, perform differently in different studios. Some rooms, they, they sound boxier than they actually really are. Uh, so that'll, that, that, that shapes what choice I make. Um, and then there's different head combinations on things too. You know, <clears throat> if I'm doing something where it kind of needs to be the real sort of fat snare, uh, then that's going to limit what's, what snare I use. I have three drums that are set up that way. Um, and what's weird is one of them is a, is a, uh, a 13 by six maple craviato snare that I have tuned low and uh, it'll do that. It'll do that weird, almost kind of Eagles thing, but with a certain, with a bit more crack uh, that drum works in most rooms, but uh, I, I typically go to a, I have a seven by 14 maple craviato that I use a lot for that kind of fat gushy thing. And that doesn't always react well in certain rooms, um, the, sometimes the low part of that note can be too fluffy, uh, and it's not really a tuning thing that can fix it. And then I'll go to that 13 and it'll solve the problem immediately. But, you know, to, to go back to the initial question, it's really just the song dictates what snare I use. And, you know, sometimes I try to purposely do something that's irreverent, you know, like, cause I do love those kinds of tracks where, it's almost a little bit wrong. The snare drum is a little bit wrong. Um, you know, uh, does that take some convincing for the, the crew? Like, <laughs> Oh yeah. Me on this? Well, yeah. No, well, yeah. Then sometimes they're like, no, fuck off, dude. That is, <laughs> that is terrible. <laughs> and it's funny, man. It's really funny how certain, uh, you know, there are, there is, I work with a few, uh, players, um, a uh, guitar player named Tom Bugovac specifically, who's very, very sensitive about what snare is used. <laughs> like, dude, just play your fucking guitar, man. <laughs> uh, you know, but it's, it's, it's such a, you know, the snare drum is just, um, it's nice when it makes everyone happy, but it's, it's not always possible, you know, yeah. Because ultimately, man, you're just trying to make the, the producer, uh, mostly the engineer, happy in that setting, you know, and then, of course, the artist as well. Because it, it, it's really, it's such a funny thing, man. It's, it's really either, it, it just is, it dictates what level of impact the track is going to have, mm-hmm. you know, like, uh, y- you know, the, the, a lot of songs, man, it's just so much better to, for, for it to be low impact you know uh 
And and in that setting now, I, I definitely play way lighter. Um, just look for, uh, just, hit, just try to find the sweet spot on the snare drum, you know, to where it has the the uh, right amount of tone, the right amount of attack, but it's not too abrasive for the track, you know. Uh, but it's trial and error, you know. That's really the thing is like, you, you know, uh, the nice thing about experience is that you you do you do get a general idea uh, what works and what doesn't, you know. Mm. So, do you ever change up sticks? Your signature stick is a pretty big stick. When you uh, play lighter, do you go smaller? Or do you use the same stick? No, nah, I use the same stick, man. I, um, I guess I should have some lighter ones laying around in there. <laughs> I don't. <laughs> I mean, I know people do that, and 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 it and it does it can do a really cool thing. Um, you know, but yeah, I usually just change my stroke. Yeah. Uh, sort of the relationship to my hand um, on on the stick. I'd rather have that stay con- consistent. But you know, I, I've done a few tracks where I'm playing uh, like three A's or something like that. You know, mm-hmm. it can do, it, that can do a cool thing for sure. Yeah, well, maybe I'll I'll take your advice. And yeah, get some seven A's. Get, get some of that going. Yeah, <laughs> you kind of partially answered my next question because I wanted to okay. go deep in the snare sounds. Yeah, um, I was listening to two records. I mean, for me, Keith Urban Defying Gravity was the record I first became obsessed with your sound. And then I just listened to the Patti Smythe record. Didn't even know that was out. And they're kind of like bookends for me. Oh, cool. Like I could tell it was you within one one backbeat. Oh, nice. And there's like four very distinct snare drum sounds on that record. And I would say the same for the Keith Urban record. There's the meaty like chesty sound which i think those are the two drums you just defined yeah so that's uh what what are those drums that we if someone says give me the meaty thumpy snare sound what okay do you so use? i i have i have three that are set up that way well actually four um but i don't always bring the fourth okay so the first for the for the like for meaty uh but little higher up pitched is a craviato solid maple uh um seven by 13 it's a 13 mm-hmm. inch drum um and i usually use a uh coated um ambassador with the dot underneath mm-hmm. on that sometimes it's an emperor and then the next one is a seven by 14 solid maple craviato um that has uh always an emperor on that that's the real fat one Mm. the the lower one and then when i'm going for that sound but it has i'm crack when i do it if i'm cracking the rim it's a 7 by 14 birch craviato solid Mm. and that sometimes has a clear black dot on it um the control sound and then the other thing is i have a uh an 8 by 14 yamaha uh recording custom um and that's the real big fat like um uh, there was a song on carrie underwood called last name uh that i played that on and it's gratuitously kind of <laughs> large uh 
the Mutt Lang sound. It is. It, is. <laughs> it totally is the Mutt Lang sound. And uh, what's funny about that drum is that, you know, we, when I was with Keith uh, in like the mid 2000s, we toured um, in the UK with Brian Adams and Mickey Curry is uh, uh, just a, a massive love and respect for Mickey Curry. And uh, that's, I just asked him, I was like, what is that? And he told me what it was. And so I went out and got one, you know. And it did it right I, away? Well, yeah, well, yeah. Well, the, you know, he kind of gave me a general sense of what the tuning was like and all of that. But, you know, I mean, look, man, I don't think I sound as, you know, I can, I don't capture that as well as I think Mickey does. But it, it, it has enough of the, of that, that the ingredient to uh, communicate what that is, you know. Mm-hmm. So, um I just love, I'm such a huge fan of just the sound of Mickey hitting a snare drum. Um, you know, uh, what else? Yeah, that's kind of it. I mean, you know, what's, what's funny is on, on some of these things, man, you, you're, it is a, I'll pull a drum up and start to play it on the track and the engineer will be like, Hey man, can you, can you lower the pitch of that or try a different drum? And sometimes you, you are, you know, I can get a drum that typically I wouldn't use for that kind of fat sound and just to be expedient or because they like most of the elements of that snare drum, but they just don't like the pitch of kind of dropping it down and try to get it to fit. Mm-hmm. And, and, and nice, nice accidents happen that way. You know, mm-hmm. uh, it, it, it's sort of like, you know, grabbing those other three drums I talked about, uh, or, or four drums, actually, those are sort of already right in that area. So they're a nice kind of go-to, but there really isn't anything wrong with like, you know, you, you can, you can have some really great happy accidents trying to get a drum to do something you typically wouldn't use it for, mm-hmm. uh, you, you know, and, and that's when you're really going to need to change your, the velocity of your stroke and whether you're hitting the rim or not, if you're hitting it in the center of the drum. Sometimes on that, uh, that Yamaha, the, you know, the Mutt Lang kind of sound, I actually turn the stick around and use the butt end on that thing. Mm -hmm. Even as big as the sticks that I'm using are, it's, it's even the impact of that you know, on the butt end of that stick is pretty, pretty amazing too, you know, but again, that it, it also depends on the room. You know, if you're, if you're in something, if you're in a small room and it's shutting down, you just, you, you have to adjust your velocity to where you're not caving the room in, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and, um, cause at that point, you, you know, all of the drums get kind of weird and phasey sounding, you know, you're, 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 you're playing outside of the boundary that the room can actually handle your level. And I think we've all experienced that, you know, if you're just listening, you can tell it's like, Oh, Holy shit. These drums are folding into themselves. They're not, Mm -hmm. they're not, they're not speaking and they're not blooming. So, you know, you, you, you adjust your, your velocity for that. And, um, and it, and it's, um, I work with a few people that are, uh, really intuitive uh, 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 producer and an engineer that are really like, you know, as we're running the to- the song down, they'll, they'll be listening. I'll give them different velocity options 
and they'll hit the talk guy and go right there. That's the one. Everything's speaking really nice right there. The other instruments are 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 sitting in really good with the kit. So that's our to stick to that on this song. Hmm. This will be your velocity, uh, you know. And um, that's to me, man. That's the thing that makes a great record is is um, is is really that. It does take you, you know. There's only so much any musician can do on their own and there's you know the more sort of self-producing i can be i think the better it is for everyone but at the end of the day man the the best things i've ever done are because of the other people in the room not 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 because i was there on my own you know because i lose objectivity I, i don't particularly like working remote sessions you know i mean it's it's fine. I, I like. I, I I can do it, and I, I I'm confident I can give someone what they want. But my favorite musical moments are the things that happen when I'm on the floor with other people, mm-hmm. and I'm working with a producer in the room and an engineer in the room. Uh, I think it's 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 more freeing to me to not to be worried about the engineering side of it. Mm-hmm. You know, I love engineering and I love, uh, you know, gear and I love getting sound, you know, experimenting with sounds and different things. But at a certain point when it comes to getting into the track, I'd rather have be working with people. Mm-hmm. Sure. Yeah. Forks Drum Closet, Nashville's full line drum store. Celebrating its 40th year in business, Forks is independently owned and operated in the heart of Music City. Specializing in drums and percussion, Forks offers great discounts on all major brands and will beat any retailer's advertised price. From new and used equipment, vintage drums, and marching and orchestral instrument, Forks has something for every drummer. They also offer professional rental, repair, and restoration services, as well as drum lessons. Stop by their storefront at 308 Chestnut Street in Nashville, Tennessee, or call 615-383-8343, or go online at ForksDrumCloset.com. All right, the second snare sound that I think is signature for you is the big, open, resonant, ringy snare. Yeah. So what okay. are your go-tos for that? Uh, all right, that's that's a, uh, a Craviato 6.5 by 14 uh, Adrian uh, Kirchler diamond. Mm. It's, uh, it's a um, nickel over brass shell. And um, yeah, that's, man, uh, you know, I'd say 90% of the time that that is a, uh, a coded ambassador with the dot underneath. Mm-hmm. And then the other 10% is an emperor. But it's really like, you know, that thing is, um, it's just a balance between uh, the, the crack. I'm always hitting the rim on that sound. The, the length of, the overtone and then the tension of snare wires. Mm -hmm. Um, And there are subtle differences in it from, from track to track, you know, Uh, it just depends on the tempo of the song or whatever, but that's really that thing. Um, You you know, that's kind of the same thing that I, uh, before I was playing Craviato, I could, you know, I got that out of a, um, you know, a superphonic six and a half by 14. 
it's really the same kind of thing. I would say the difference with the, the, the Craviato, you know, AK drum is, uh, it's, um, like, uh, it's bigger and the impact is, is, um, is more here. Mm-hmm. And then the Ludwig is kind of more here. Mm-hmm. Um, not thinner, just sort of like, um, and it's not even necessarily pinch, uh, pitch, but it's like um, Adrian's shell is like, it's roar, it roars. Yeah, you can feel it. It roars, it roars more. And the, the, the Ludwig version of that, uh, you know, is, is, is not, you know, it's um, Adrian's, is, uh, the Craviato is like a muscle car mm-hmm. and the Ludwig is, is like a souped up Toyota. Mm. there's nothing wrong with either one of those, but you know, that's kind of the difference, you know, uh, I really love that, that drum in particular. I have two of them of, uh, of those Cravios. One is a black diamond. It's called, it's, it's one of five that was made. Um, and then the, the five and a half version of that, which I have as well. Those are phenomenal too. Is that all, the all, crackier version of that? Because that was the third sound I hear often from you. Is yeah. it the tighter, crackier, but still resonant sound? Yeah, it's it's that, or it's the Masters Metal Craviato, again, another Adrian shell uh, with the uh, brass copper, mm. five and a half. Um, that's the higher one. Uh, but I also use... Um, I have a uh, a seventies uh, Ludwig um, piccolo hmm. or soprano, I guess it's a thirteen. Okay, and it's you know three and a half inches deep. Uh, that drum is deceptive. Uh, you can crank it up way up high and get kind of like the Quest Love kind of thing, mm-hmm. or you can sort of tune it in the middle and. Um, it's a, like a smaller version of, of, of what the Adrian thing is. And then uh, what's funny is I do use a lot of 13s. Um, another 13 that's in that, the higher crackier one is a solid maple Craviato uh, three and a half by 13. Um, and uh, that's got angel hoops on it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's kind of more of the higher, the higher one. Uh, and then the, the, another version of this tone that we're talking about is uh, I have a Keplinger black iron snare that does that as well. Um, it's a different, it's kind of louder in the room, but it doesn't roar in the middle the way that, uh, you know, that the Craviato does. Um, what else? Have, oh, and then I have um, I have a six and a half uh, of the copper Craviato uh, Adrian drum, and the five of that as well. Those sound more. Um, they're like polished versions of that nickel over brass in terms of the tone. So if you hear if you hear me play something that's like <clears throat> cracky and this kind of has that explosive thing on the middle but it's more tame. Mm-hmm. Those, those are the copper. Ah, okay. Yeah. So it, do you take all of these to every session or oh, is it one yeah. of each? You take them all, they all go. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, 
what what goes like 18 to 20 snares per session okay. so you've got multiple choices in each of these worlds to kind of yeah because because the you know uh just keeping heads rotated and fresh on them and they are subtly different and they do change um just the way that the stick hits the head you know they all react differently and that's the way it is too from drum to drum too you know i mean you can have you can have five brand new uh drum workshop snare drums you know steel snare drums and they're not all going to feel the same when you hit them Mm. even if you match the tuning you know they there's there's molecule differences in there you know and i'm not knocking you know dw has fantastic quality but at the end of the day no two drums sound exactly alike man Mm -hmm. how do you control that ring so it's not annoying but still (laughs) presence to the track oh man well you know uh so the the um typical tricks are so anything from you know like one of those little rebo o things just Mm -hmm. laying laying it on the snare drum uh duct tape uh and i do when i use duct tape i do the um you know the little peaks Mm -hmm. i put put those in yeah so that the um vibrations have somewhere to go uh the and moon gels moon gels are phenomenal and and then the like uh i just took an old sheet like most people do um you know bed sheet and ripped it up into little squares and then i you know i have the little um clips little paper clip things and clip to the side of the drum Mm -hmm. what's nice about those is that you can really you can regulate the amount of uh sustain you want the drum to have sometimes it's a combo of of all of those Mm. um and uh occasionally it's there's some duct tape on the bottom head to control the length but man i mean it is like every drummer goes through that thing it's really kind of like you know, man, whatever I got to do to preserve <laughs> the the tone that I like about this thing and have it cut off at the right moment to where the engineer is happy. Uh, you know, and it, and it, that's when I'll mess with velocity as well too, you know, like, cause you know, the harder you hit a drum, you, you, you might light the room up a bit more, but the drum can only respond so much. So like it, certain things start to flatline, you know, the harder you hit something, the, the attack of the sound goes up and then the tone starts to shrink. Mm-hmm. And then, and just like, you know, hitting a, hitting a chord on a guitar, you, the, if you smash that thing, then the, it just thins out, you know, it, it, it gets uh, compressed and I don't mean that in a plug-in or a, or a piece of gear way. It's physically compressed at the source. You know, mm-hmm. the guitar the guitar can't cannot the notes won't bloom. You know, you're just like. Grr. So that's the funny thing, even about the way I play too. Is I, I'm you know, I play 
hard, but I don't, I'm not trying to play to where the drums don't speak. You know, the, the most important thing to me is that the, every note of the kit blooms, you know, mm-hmm. and, um, and it's, it's not, you know, none of that is like voodoo or anything. It's, you're just listening, you know, you can hear it. Um, you know, you, you can hear when the, when a drum's got its sweet spot, same thing with a cymbal, you know, if you're just knocking the shit out of your cymbals, then the, that's all the overheads are going to get. And the best part of any drum set is, is in the overhead to me, mm-hmm. you know, it's in the overheads and, and in the rooms. And so that's what I'm playing to, you know, so the, the tuning, the length of that ring and all of that has to fit in. Like I want the overheads to see the, see the kid as one instrument, not, mm-hmm. not separate, you know, and, and, um, uh, and there's an easy way to work on that too. If you're, if you're, you're curious about, you know, or wanting to work on that or, or is, uh, that's, what's great about these phones. You know, you can just hit record and put your phone five, six feet away from your drum kit and just play the way you naturally do listen to that back. <clears throat> and then whatever is too loud, learn to mix yourself. Mm. Why do you think on that the, works on an iPhone? On the kit. Well, just because it's it's a nice microphone mm-hmm. and everyone has a phone typically. So and and they all have there's a, a memo record on every phone. I, I just meant that because you don't have to go out and buy new gear to figure out mm. how to play. <laughs> I got it. Yeah. Yeah, you know what I mean? You know this this you don't have to buy anything. You already have a device that will help you be a better, uh, you know, a better self mixer. Right. I imagine nine times out of 10, the symbols are too loud, right? That's oh God. Lesson. Yeah. <laughs> Dude. Well, that's the, that's the beauty of the older recordings of the, of the three mic recordings or the one mic recordings, you know, like, um, rock around the clock and jailhouse rock are, are two of my favorite drum tracks of all time. There aren't any close mics on any of those drum sets. There's no close close mics on anything. There's like three mics on the the Bill Haley thing. They're positioned around three mics. And at that point in recording, the engineer was like, okay, guitar player, you need to move your amp five feet back (laughs) and and turn it down. Okay, upright bass player, you need to move forward. Mm -hmm. Bring your bass forward. Uh, You know, drummer, uh, move your kit back X amount of feet. Uh, to me, that's the thing that, that is, is that is more relevant to me than, uh, you know, if, if someone was going to ask me, you know, what can I do to, to be a better session player to me, it would be perfect the way that you sound through one microphone source. Mm-hmm. Does your entire groove come across? Can I hear the hi-hat subdivisions? Uh, can, I, can I get, you know, the presence of the bass drum? And is the backbeat relative to that level? And when you do hit a crash, does it sit inside of the drum set? And, and th- this is a, here's a hot tip. <laughs> <laughs> Bring it. To me, it's, it's you, you level out your kick and your snare velocity 
your hi-hat level is is lower than that. It's inside of it. Mm-hmm. So your your kick and your snare are always are always above that. The hat is a little below dancing. And then when you hit a cymbal, don't change your velocity of your kick and snare, but that cymbal should still be down there in your hi-hat range. Mm. I mean, man, if there's anything I'm still trying to fucking pull off after all these years, it's that. Because that's what, that, that's that's the, you know, and, and, and I do post stuff where um, it's just iPhone stuff because that's what I'm doing is I'm trying, I'm working on the shit I'm doing. Mm-hmm. And, and I also think it's the, 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 it's a nice, clean, clear way for people to hear what you can do. It's mm-hmm. like, you know what I mean? You know, that, that, those are the fun clips where it's just the damn phone. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, because there's no, there's no shenanigans going on, man. You yeah. know, it's I th- like, uh, I mean, the yeah. kick, the kick drum is ultimately the, the governor of the volume, right? Cause it can only go so loud. You can only kick a kick drum so loud. Snare, you can always obliterate. Symbol, right. you can always obliterate. <laughs> exactly, exactly. But man, that to me, like when I hear Bonham play, what I'm hearing is a guy who's mixing himself. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, now I don't, I never was in a room with him, so I don't know. But I do know with the limited amount of microphones that they would use on the kit, uh, and it's mainly overheads, what we're hearing the source was balanced, mm-hmm. you know, um, it, it, um, so that to me is, is still the most intriguing thing is what can I do at the source? Mm-hmm. You know, um, you know, that, that's where, when everything is on, even on a tracking date, it's, it's when I'm playing inside of the microphones, you know, and, I, and I'm not, and I'm not smashing anything too hard. And, you know, and you can do that at a high velocity, you know, but um, it's, it's really dependent on, you know, if, if there's room mics and if they're using what they call like, um, like a distorted mic or a gack mic, some people call it, it's typically above the snare drum. I mean, above the kick drum, mm-hmm. you're using two toms above the kick drum pointed at the snare drum, but it's picking up the whole drum set. It's like, um, it's kind of the equivalent of, of the phone thing. And if you have the engineer bring that up in your headphones and you can play into that mm. and your whole kit will sound better because you're balancing yourself for that one mic, mm-hmm. you know, and it, typically they're compressing and distorting that thing too, which is nice because that'll keep your hi-hat in line too, you know, because if you really hit that, then the compressor grabs it. Mm-hmm. And th- and then whatever happens next is, is too low in volume. But when you're playing inside of the compression and, and, you know, you're, you're keeping your kick and your snare at, at the, the focus of your velocity level, then everything dances and all that's, that's when all that nice, nice shit happens to me. That's just my opinion. But you know that that's when you know you, I can really feel like oh, okay this is this is something something's happening here. Um, Man, that's a masterclass. Right I play <laughs> I, I play better I play better when that that happens. I'm more comfortable and and you know typically to me you know and I, and I know that this is just it's a bit it's emotional, 
but the sounds are so relative to me to 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 what I'm going to do groove wise. Like mm-hmm. uh, it's hard for me to to groove on something that I think sounds like shit because mm-hmm. I can't stop thinking about it. I'm like, God, it sounds awful. <laughs> you know, and I could fake it to a certain degree, you know, but but ultimately I'm I'm gonna give you the best uh playing I can give you when I'm happy with the sounds and and um you know everything else falls in line with that, you know. But I have, you know, I mean I've played on some things, you know, some things where I was uh, the producer might have their own gear and I'm just coming over to play on something. I thought, God, this is terrible. Mm. And then I hear the record and I'm like, Holy shit. So (laughs) yeah, that's why I say, I, that's why I say, I know it's emotional or, or just mental, you know, uh, cause I can, I could talk myself out of, um, something you know it could be playing along and like god this is terrible and then one of the other players would be like dude what are you talking about it feels great Mm. uh and then i gotta get out of that space and then kind of listen objectively and go like oh shit he's right Mm -hmm. i just personally need to make one little teeny adjustment with what i'm doing and and we're actually we're we're way further along in this thing than i thought Mm. whereas i was thinking this is all terrible it's all horrible they're gonna fire me and then, you know, again, another guy says, oh, dude, man, it's so good. And then I, on that playback is when I go, oh, shit, this is the part I don't like about it. I make that subtle adjustment and then we're fine. But if I just was there on my own, I'd be like, oh, fuck this. Erase it. It's terrible. <laughs> you know, so so that, that that's the to, to try to, you know, to just keep all of that in check, you know, um, is the uh interesting thing and, and it doesn't that never goes away you know it doesn't matter how long I'm doing this it's i don't know who's going to show up in terms of me you know the, the 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 many crazy parts of me on on any given day you know some days i show up and i'm i'm you know i'm in and i'm grooving and i'm feeling good about everything and i'm and i'm in the moment and and i'm in sync with the producer and the engineer and the artist and then other days are just like God. Nothing I'm playing is good. Uh, and then that's when the experience kicks in because it's like, okay, I know what is acceptable, and as long as whatever men- mental illness I might have going on in any particular day, as long as I deliver that thing, <laughs> then that's that the song is going to come across and everything's going to be okay. Because you know, some days are just not. They're just I'm not. I'm not in it. I'm not, you know, I'm not present and I'm not, you know, in that flow or in that groove or whatever you want to call it. But the muscle memory and the experience, I can provide whatever. It doesn't matter. I don't have to listen to this. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like, okay, regardless of this craziness, this is what I know works. And these these people are, I'm a part of making a product. So I have to provide my, you know, my cog, my little piece handed into the product for the rest of it to be built upon, you know? So anyway, do you have any like pre-game rituals, like an athlete you go through to get yourself, at least setting yourself up for success? Oh, uh, dang. Uh, you know, 
Oh, man. That's a great question. Sleeping is, <laughs> is, is really important. Um, and, um, you know, that when, when I'm the most sort of, uh, you know, spiritually centered, uh, that, that's when I can kind of, that's when I can kind of be the best version of myself. And by that, I mean, like, uh, you know, everybody has, you know, you know, you may or may not, you know, you have your, your, your own, um, uh, wherever you're at spiritually, but the kind of, I would say the most important thing in terms of that for me is the awareness of, of what, uh, what I'm responsible for and what I'm not. So what that means is if I stay up all night, and I have a session the next morning, chances are I'm going to play like shit. Mm-hmm. So if I'm spiritually centered, which means I'm trying to look for the betterment of all humanity and certainly the betterment of myself, then that means it's on me to get a good night's sleep and to come into the session, which other people are on, right? Like it's just not, it's not just about me. So the more I'm taking care of myself, then the more when I arrive at that session that I'm in that positive flow of what happens creatively. And then where that shows up mentally is that if, if I'm in that good space, uh, if, if I'm in the seeing how things, you know, really are, uh, taking responsibility for my thoughts and my actions, then when I arrive at that session, I'm clear. I'm not coming in with a bunch of resentment or anger about something that somebody said or did or, or uh, how fucked is this fucking project we're working on, or this guy's an asshole. Uh, So the key to success is, you know, man, it starts with personal accountability. It's like, uh, man, I've gone and played on these things and these people don't like it. All right. Well, so what can I do to change that? Well, they, I found out that they, they actually like what I played, but they didn't like my hand. Mm. You know, I was negative or critical or, um, I didn't get along with the rest of the session players or I was combative or the producer asked me to do something and I threw him a bunch of attitude. Mm-hmm. So if I'm going to be a successful session player, then I got to be agreeable. Mm-hmm. And if there's something innately wrong with me that stops me from being an agreeable person well man i better find out what the fuck that is (laughs) right (laughs) do do i have some kind of expectation on life that is unrealistic Mm. you know or like you know what it's it's like man i showed up for the session late my gear sounded like shit because i didn't change heads like i should have all my hardware was squeaking I didn't get any sleep and I responded to every uh, change that the producer had with some shitty offhanded comment and they didn't call me back. It's like, well, what the fuck do you expect, man? Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, you, you know, th- that's the thing is, is how do I keep, uh, you know, man, what's the key to success is don't shoot yourself in the foot, you know, like, like, don't be, um, 
don't let any of your behavior or your perceptions get in the way of the music that needs to happen, you know? Mm. Okay. So then on the practical drumming side, it's, you know, man, what makes me feel the most uh, confident in my playing is, um, you know, some kind of like at five times a week, at least, at least 30 minutes of cardio. Mm. Walking is fine. Walk around the neighborhood 30 minutes, at least, you know, five times a week. And then lifting some kind of weights, you know, just staying to like where you're, you know, if I have a thought of playing something, I want my muscles to be able to respond to that. So, you know, I'm 57. Uh, so it's even more so that I stay loose and strong, you know, um, th- that's, that's really the deal. So like for me, where I'm at, most of the guys that are, uh, you know, so I'm 57. There, there are other drummers who are working who are 20 years to even more so younger than me. And we're all playing on the same stuff. Mm-hmm. So if I just, if I don't do that, right. If I, if I don't do cardio and I don't do weights and I'm not trying to stay strong and healthy, then I'm not going to be able to, uh, compete on that level. Compete may not necessarily be the right word, but can I provide the same thing that a guy who is 27 years old and it's on me, uh, to, to keep that together. So that's also a part of the su- success thing, you know, is like, you know, a good way to look at it is, is if you were hiring yourself, would you be pleased with that decision? Mm, that's deep. You know? <laughs> so it's like, what, what, what guy, you know, that's, what's great about thinking about all of it as a musician to think about it as if you were a plumber. Cause you know, look, man, we, we want to glamorize or like, you know, there's this press prestige aspect. We, we may want to place upon what we're doing and it's nice, right? It's it, look, you know, man, it's, this is a really fun, cool thing to play on a record. That's a hit. Mm-hmm. And, and that, uh, fellow musicians and drummers and stuff are, are like, damn, man, that was fucking great. I love that. I love the sounds and, you know, you know, you're badass and all of that. But honestly, with a lot of it, you know, a good, healthy way with your ego is to realize that anybody can do it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's a better philosophy than, well, fuck, man. Yeah, only I could do that. It's like, no, 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 no. Look, man, you know, it, it's a skill like anything else. And uh, there are certain aspects to the skill. You either have the ability or, or you don't. But then, honing that skill is on you. There's plenty of guys in this town that have honed their skill just like I have. Mm -hmm. So, so the best way to, to, you know, for, for, I think is like, if I had a leak in my faucet right now, what plumber do I want to get? Well, man, I want to get the one that's the best plumbing and it's going to get in and out of here without a bunch of bullshit. Mm -hmm. You know, Um, I don't want to hear about politics. I don't want to hear about, um, you know, anything I want you to, I want you to come in, fix this leak, uh, 
and and I'll you know engage with you and all of that. But at the end of the day, you know, man, hand me came the invoice and I'll pay you and, and I'll see you. That's what leads to the next call. Mm-hmm. So you know it, that that's the thing is is the, you know to be self aware. Uh, something I wish I had done at a much earlier age, and I've got plenty to work, plenty of work to do. But that has been the most sort of um, that's really affected my playing in a better way. Like when I started to really sense my own energy in the room and and uh, how I interact with people, because um, you know, man, that's really the cool thing about getting old is is you know getting older. I don't feel old, but you know, it, it uh, the the crazy thing about having recorded for so long is all of these things are permanent records. Like you go back and listen to, you know, the shit I played in 1985 is still there. Mm -hmm. So, (laughs) you know, you can reflect back on it and and go, well, well, what do I want my life to look like different? You you know, like, uh, because, you know, for me, I, you know, I had a few things happen in my life to where I, I, it was a real reevaluation of like, you know, what do I want my life to be like? What do I want my relationships to look like? How do I, how do I want to be as a dad, you know? Um, so what's crazy is that all of it is intertwined, even with playing. Mm-hmm. So, so, so the more self-aware and the more um, I was desiring change in myself, the better my playing got. Mm-hmm. Now, some people would go, oh, dude, I can't, you know, what what you did ten years ago is is it was was really cool, and what you're doing now is really cool, but it feels different to me. Mm. And and I like I like uh, you know the way that I interact with people now uh, better than I did before, and uh, and I have had you know uh, friends and and producers and different things. People, it is different. You know, it it has it has made a change. So to be successful is, man, first starts with self-awareness, you know, mm-hmm. and the other thing would be, would I hire me? Mm, man, I like that one. That is yeah. a good one. All right, I got to bring it back to the gear one, for one yeah. last time here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there was a fourth snare sound on the Patty Smythe record that I haven't heard come out of you much. That like ratty, old sounding, like, what is that drum? Sounds like an old colonial drum or something um i think it's on billy ode to billy joe was the track i believe if you remember oh you know what that is uh you know you know i haven't heard it come out of me because that is uh fred eltringham oh that's not you well then never mind (laughs) (laughs) i don't know what fred uses yeah that's the only track he's on Wow, it was so different. I'm like, I've never heard this sound before. <laughs> yeah, he's proud, oh, man. Fred's Fred's great. Um, I don't know. I don't know what he. I don't know what he did. Uh, um, I mean, I know he has a lot of really cool instruments, and I know he has some. He it may have been like some kind of field drum or something. Mm. Uh, he, you know, Fred's great. He he is. Uh, he, you know, uh, I love what he does. So yeah. All right. I got one, have to ask him. <laughs> one final little surprise here in the studio here. Hang on. Okay. <clears throat> you probably don't remember, 
But I emailed you, I believe in 2008. It was when Sweet Thing was released as a single. Uh-huh. And I said, what the hell is a snare drum on that track? And you told me it was a Joyful Noise Flame Birch. Yeah. So I contacted Kurt Waltrip at Joyful Noise. I said, what is that shell? He said, it's a Von Kraft shell. I contacted Von Kraft, got one of the exact same shells, oh, <laughs> sent wow. it to GMS, sent them, I sent it to Tony at GMS, and I said, listen to this song, make this drum sound like that song. And? <laughs> it sounds exactly like Oh, it. that's awesome. <laughs> so this drum has been all, I mean, this is a desert island drum for me. So my final question, well, first of all, thank you for taking me down this path. This was yeah, literally man. the first drum I like chased. Wow. What is your desert island drum? If you had to be buried with a snare drum. Oh man, that's a great question. Uh, I would say the um, uh, the the Craviato Diamond Nickel Over Brass six and a half by fourteen, mm -hmm. the Adrian Shell, yeah. Yeah, that that would be the one. Um, yeah, it just kind of does everything. Um, I could get it to do whatever, whatever, whatever I need. Nice, you know. Yeah, man. What's Those funny aren't is available anymore? Are they? Is he no, no. Well, you can get. You know, Adrian makes them. They're they're. I don't know the difference, but um, uh, Shannon Forrest has got a bunch of the ones that Adrian made. Mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, you can go to Adrian's website and, and get a, it won't look exactly like it, but it, I mean, he does nickel over brass, uh, basically the same configuration, um, as, as the ones that the Craviato had. Um, but yeah, his, his, he's got a good website there. Nice. Uh, those are made in Italy, I think. And, mm. um, yeah, but, uh, you know, he's, he's real, um, you know, there's nothing, uh, I mean, he ships internationally and all that kind of stuff. So it's, it's got full pricing on there, but I was, wanted to say too, you know, it was interesting is on, on that, that diamond snare that I'd use, you know, it's quite a bit. Uh, sometimes I only have like 14 strand snares on there. Mm, really? Yeah. What does yeah, that so do that, for you? You can keep them looser. Well, it's, it's like, I use the, uh, the, the um, pure sound, uh, what they call the orchestral or the symphonic snares. Mm -hmm. And they're, they're much more, they're not as, uh, they're not as taut, they're looser, mm -hmm. but, but they kind of lay against the head. Uh, like you, you can, the lighter you play the they're just incredibly efficient, but, um, but yeah, I've got the 14 strands on there. Um, they're way different than like the blasters and some of the other ones they make. Mm. Um, but yeah, they're called orchestral. They used to make 12 strand, I think. And I, th I think I still have some of those, but I think they got rid of those. So think of the orchestral, they have 14 and 16 strand. Mm. But that's another cool thing for, for people to check out. Um, uh, that that's really a part of that length of note thing. I noticed that, that the, those orchestral snares that, you know, when I really nail the snare drum, the way they blow out from the head and then come back has a real thing to it. Uh, you know, I can't specifically tell you what's happening 
because I don't, I wouldn't really know how to put it into words, but I just know that, that the way that thing, those snares react with the type of tension that I like to use is a really cool combination. But I like, I like really bright uh, snares too. Mm. Like the, the, the factory Yamaha snare wires are, are really great too. Those are particularly bright. Uh, so those are, those are, you know, it's, it's funny. Like, like drummers need more gear to get into, but <laughs> of course. I have, I, I have spent, that's a fun thing to do is, you know, I mean, you can have three snare drums and experiment uh, endlessly on head combinations and then snare wires mm-hmm. to find your thing, you know, to, to, um, the elusive sort of inside thing that you're looking for. Cause I do, I do play with, I like to use roughs, you know, I like to, to drag a lot in between backbeats and, you know, I want that, I want those notes to be communicated. And, uh, in particular, those pure sounds, those orchestral ones really, um, really do that for me. So, Sick. well, man. Yeah, man, thank you so much for yeah, sitting and you. chatting. I've got a lot yeah, to, man. I mean, it's the philosophical stuff. Would you hire yourself? <laughs> Put that one on the wall. <laughs> <laughs> well, what's the? Uh, I hate. I hate that it's attributed to, to Woody Allen because he's not. You know, he, he hasn't held up well. But well, what it was you say? I I, I never want to be a member of a, a club that that I would never want to be in a club that I'm a member of. It's, it's something to that effect, but. You know, I think I think a better the better way to look at it is for sure. You know, what what I hire me. You know, what yeah. what am I? What would I get if I hired me on a session? You know, so <laughs> so that that, that that's really the thing. Yeah. <laughs> All right, man. Well, it's a pleasure to meet you. That's it for this week's episode. Hope you enjoyed my chat with the great Chris McHugh. Do yourself a favor and dig through his discography and just start analyzing how he builds up tracks and chooses sounds. Every record is a masterclass. So hope you enjoyed it. Please give us a review over on iTunes wherever you get your podcasts, and we will see you next week. Bye.